The New York Stock Exchange is the largest exchange in the world, synonymous with global finance and the spirit of capitalism. Now for the first time in its 228-year history, the NYSE has gone fully electronic, its empty trading floor serving as a symbol for our current crisis and the challenge that lies ahead. In this episode of Influencers, I speak with Stacy Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange and one of the most influential women on Wall Street. She joins me as we discuss the U.S. economy, the stock market, and America's road to recovery. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer, and I want to welcome our guest, Stacy Cunningham, president of the New York Stock Exchange. Stacy, nice to see you. Great to see you, Andy. Thanks for having me on. So it looks like the New York Stock Exchange is working just fine. How are things going, and how are you doing it? You know, the, the exchange obviously can run in a number of setups. And so we have our full-service offering, where we have the trading floor alongside our model and alongside the technology that we use. And we have two components of that model up and running right now. The, the floor part is the only part that we that we shut down given the, the pandemic. So the, the markets are, are running fine, the exchange is running fine. And as soon as we can reopen with a full level of service, we will. So who do you communicate during a time like this? Are you in touch with Washington, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, Governor Cuomo? What are the kinds of conversations you need to have? All of the above. <laughs> so certainly throughout this period of time, we've been in close contact with our government contacts across the local, state, federal federal uh, um, levels. Also with our regulator, certainly Chairman Clayton and I have been in, in frequent communication throughout the entire period of time. Given the level of volatility we see in the markets, we're very focused on making sure that investors are getting the level of service that, that, that they expect and, and how the markets are operating, making sure that they operate and continue to operate very, very smoothly. And so certainly at that level as well, Importantly, with our list of uh, listed companies across our NYC community, we have 20, close to 2,300 listed companies that are all looking and dealing with similar challenges that are you know, perhaps unique based on their businesses, but it's certainly a period of uncertainty. So helping them navigate this period of time is how I've been spending a lot of our time by providing them expert advice and bringing the community together to, to help learn from each other. And they've really been astounding. Andy, I can't tell you, I've been in this business for a really long time. I've never seen uh, a community come together like the way we saw the, the, the listed companies respond to this pandemic at every single level. Yeah, maybe following up on that, I was going to ask you, you have, of course, contingency plans that you sort of put into effect anticipating perhaps that the exchange would have to close for an emergency, mm -hmm. and this is one of them. What new things have you had to do or have you learned specifically during this time? Yeah, one of the things that I love most about the financial markets is they're always evolving and we're always learning. So you mentioned some contingency plans. Those have been iterations of things we've learned through past events and how can we continue to build resiliency. The industry does a really, really good job of coming together after a crisis and taking a step back and saying, what are the lessons that we learned? How can we continue to improve the experience for investors? 
let me tell you a story. One person I've been talking to a lot over the past several weeks has been former Secretary of the Treasury, Nick Brady. He was Treasury Secretary following the you know, 1987 market crash and was the, the thought leader behind the market-wide circuit breakers. So they were put in place to help slow the markets down because there was a lot of concern around market movements. Fast forward, here we are in 2020, we're using those tools that were designed in 1987. Now they're not exactly the same. When Secretary Brady first designed them, they were based on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, it was based on a numerical move. Now they're based on the S&P 500. They are tied to a percentage move, not a, not, not a, a straight point move. And they, but they continue to be a tool that we use so that we can slow the markets down. There were a lot of people calling for market closures in early March when the market was, was, was you know, precipitously dropping. And there was a view that if we shut the markets down, this will stop, you know, this will stop the, the selling. And you know, we, we were very vocal advocates against that for a number of reasons. And that, that's actually the impetus for my conversations with Secretary Brady, because the point is the market-wide circuit breakers are there for just that. If we were to mask the investor sentiment by stopping trading, that doesn't change the underlying concerns that exist in the market. And it actually takes away very valuable transparency into how the public is reacting to what they're seeing around them. And frankly, the bipartisan approval of the stimulus package and the rapid movement in DC to do something, I'm sure was in part because they also saw how people were reacting in the stock market. So having that visibility is really critical. Most importantly, we need to make sure that investors can get to their money especially when people are perhaps out of work suddenly, they need to be able to access their money. So it's important for the markets to stay open. That said, we did use our contingency plans around how do we continue to operate safely? And it became clear that in New York City, we were gonna need to not have people gathering on the trading floor, at least while we understood what's the impact on the, on the market, what's the, uh, I'm sorry, on the community and the healthcare system and each other. So that was part of the focus. And just like we do through all these other events, we'll take a step back and we'll say, what were the lessons that we learned in 2020? What are the things that we saw following this global pandemic? And are there other areas where we can continue to improve and enhance? And that, that's an ongoing work in progress that we will continue to do throughout the life of the financial markets. That's all fascinating, particularly the part about the circuit breakers and Nick Brady. I mean, that's really incredible. Talk about a wise old man available to tap into a knowledge base. Um, and and, and he, called, he, he wrote he wrote a piece uh, that that was was um, we put published it on our website because he wanted to make sure that that people didn't lose sight of the of why they were existent you know and and that this was the the focus he actually told me a really interesting story that even back in 1987 one of the reasons why they designed the market wide circuit breakers was there was a comment a question asked would you guys close the markets and a flippant response was well anything's on the table. The market sold off just in reaction to the idea that they could close, which makes sense. If you think about the idea, investors are afraid they might not have access to their money in the coming days. The idea of a potential market closure can put additional selling pressure on its own. But you never use those circuit breakers for decades. I mean, that's what's so, I mean, did you, did you test them, number one, along the way? And number two, what was it like? Can you take us maybe into your house, because that's probably where you were when you had to say, okay, these are going. Were you nervous? What was it like? 
Tell us so I wasn't I wasn't in my house at that time. So early March, we started triggering the circuit breakers. We triggered four of them through March. And so the markets were still, the trading floor was still open. So I was on the trading floor. And yes, we test them. We test them regularly, not just at the New York Stock Exchange, but with all of the other exchanges and as well, you know, with our clients as well. And you want to make sure those tests are perfect because you don't get to test them in live production. And so yeah, you, you don't breathe quite as easily when it first triggers and you think we want the market to reopen smoothly and we want to make sure this this happens exactly. You know, So there's a little bit of, of um, it, you're waiting to see how it works because we've tested it and we know it works well in testing, but you, know, you never really see it in production. But it went just fine. It was perfectly smooth. It worked exactly as it was supposed to. Certainly the markets were selling off. But same, same with moving to electronic trading on the trading floor. We test that regularly as well. But the day that we opened, I had a number of people reach out and say, well, it certainly looks smooth from the outside. And it was smooth from the inside, too. And that's because our teams work so hard. You never know when a market event is going to hit. So you need to be ready for it all the time. And, and kudos to the industry. The industry held up very, very well throughout this process. I want to go back to your conversations maybe with Washington, because I understand you talked to Treasury Secretary Mnuchin along the way. What are those conversations like, and what is the administration saying to you right now? Those conversations throughout this entire period have been very constructive. I mentioned a number of different people that we, we spoke with, both at the SEC, the Treasury, uh, and, and Governor Cuomo, Mayor de Blasio. Across the board, everyone is looking to help, and what were the solutions that we need to put in place? Uh, I think they were, I was very impressed by the, the focus of Every single, you know, what, what the goal was for everybody was shared was how do we get through this cleanly and as smoothly as possible. And th those conversations were very supportive. As I talked to all of those people, they were supportive of our maintaining the floor and keeping that open throughout this process. And then when, when it became clear that the virus was spreading quickly, they were also supportive of our decision to close the trading floor. You know, the, the floor provides, provides really unique value because it dampens volatility. And we were already in a period of heightened volatility. So the value of the floor is even more important during those periods of time, which is why uh, we'll, we'll reopen it as soon as we can. But that, that was part of the decision making, too, is how do we maintain that level of service for investors when, when we want to make sure they're getting the best experience possible? You know, we look at the data. It's a really unique experiment to be able to see, measure the value of the floor since we're in this period of time where we've closed it for the first time in our 228-year history. And the data shows that e even in the closing auction alone, roughly $10 million a day uh, is, is saved by investors in that kind of efficient pricing on the closing auction, which is, which is significant. Yeah, what is the path back, Stacey, to having the brokers come back on the floor? And of course, you've heard, you know, well, this is it. You know, they're never coming back. I mean, people are talking about it. We talked to a person today who works down there, and he said, I'm not going to come back. And you hear that not just about the NYC, about offices across the city and country. Right. So how do you know when to reopen? And is it possible that a lot of people won't come back? So we, we know we will reopen. We'll start with that. Because if you think about the, the value that we provide our, our customers, it's really three pieces. There's the technology, which is the most sophisticated exchange technology in the world coupled with our market model, which means every company that's listed on the New York Stock Exchange has a market maker assigned for trading their stock. And that's why stocks trade better. And then the third is people and the floor. And anytime you add people onto sophisticated technology, that combination, when integrated well, provides better outcomes. And so that means investors save money. That, that's why we'll, we know we'll bring the floor back 
because the data the data supports that fact that investors save money. But when is your question, right? And and how we do that is part of the part of the scenario is when do we when do we have the tools that we need to be able to protect people? So we're working through plans. We're working with with medical experts so that we can make sure we're providing an environment and perhaps there'll be changes to how we impact flow on the floor. But like you said, this is a very personal pandemic. It's impacting people, both their personal safety and their personal economics in, in, in at the same time. And so they're going to be personal decisions by how people want to choose to re-engage with society. And I think you're going to see that in every industry that has people coming together. So while we'll open the floor, everyone will also make a unique decision around when they come back. What I'm hearing from the floor broker community uh, at the NYSE is a real eagerness to get back. It's a very patriotic group. They're proud of the service that they provide to, to the global economy, and they're really looking forward to getting back as quickly as possible. So do you think that means May or June, uh, July? Do you want to be a leader here, one of the first, one of the last? I, I want to be, we, we will be smart about how we do it. So we reopened our San Francisco trading floor yesterday. And we, we brought in not a little over half of the number of people that are normally there. And that, that or I'm sorry, a little less than half the number of people that are normally there. And it, it's, it, that worked fine and, and smooth, but options trading is very complex. And so bringing that, that, that human judgment back to it was an important part of our offering. But at the same time, San Francisco was impacted very differently than New York City was impacted by this pandemic. So it comes down to having protections in place at, at a state you know, I, I, what I'm looking for is the medical system in New York City and the healthcare system. And right now, we still have a steady number of hospitalizations. Having it, having that decline, and having protective measures that we can put in is is an important important part. And I, I believe you're on Governor Cuomo's reopening board. Yes, yes, what I is, am. What does that work entail, and what's that like? Well, but you know, the governor is is taking the input from many leaders throughout New York City so that he can make decisions the right way. And I, I certainly think he's been a real leader through this whole process in identifying solutions and providing transparent information so that people can make informed decisions and setting a real real standard on that. So we'll work we'll work with the team there so that we can continue to be supportive. You know, the governor's office is very supportive in providing testing and and facilities for uh, the New York Stock Exchange when we were still open and trying to to, to maintain that status. So we'll, we'll, we'll work well with them as we go forward. Is it conceivable that you will be uh, doing temperature checks of employees as they come in? Is, yes, yeah, that is conceivable. I mean, it, obviously, it, I like to think of them, and I've, not because I came up with this, because I've heard from medical experts <laughs> that they're layers of protection. And temperature checks, while not perfect, testing, while not perfect, all of those things are layers of protection. So we'll look at those layers and determine what are the ones that make sense for us to be putting in place. Social distancing is a layer of protection. And so when we reopened in San Francisco, it included temperature checks and social distancing and making sure that people were six feet apart. Those are the types of things we'll put into place so that we can provide people with, a, 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 so we can limit the risk uh, on the trading floor. And just to follow up, so have some brokers said they don't want to come back to you? Uh, not, not to me, no, no. Maybe we have, <laughs> yeah, certainly. I mean, we we speak, we've been speaking to them through this whole process. Okay. They, uh, you know, there there are some views on on you know what the right time to come back is with respect to how many people we have on the floor. You know, we yeah. want to make sure we can provide a, a service level that that meets our customers' needs. Let's talk about the markets a little bit. I mean. 
Does it surprise you that the stock market has gone up so much since March 23rd? You know, markets are reacting to news very differently than they did in the past. If you look at the actual market behavior as we went into a bear market and came out of it, the moves are consistent with historic trends. The time frame is different. So we're seeing things being much more happen much more quickly. And so that market sell-off happened more quickly and the recovery happened more quickly. Those are the, the those are trends sort of consistent with how we've seen markets start to absorb news more recently. And so it's not so surprising. I, I don't, I, you know, I I wouldn't go as far as to say that was the bottom and we're done. I think we are going to continue to see market moves. Markets react to uncertainty. And this is a very uncertain time. Every week we have new information. And each time we get more and more concrete, uh, more concrete sense of how we will recover, I think that's when you're going to see the market have more stability. But as information changes from week to week, you're seeing that reflected in investor sentiment. I mean, there's a lot of talk, Stacey, about the market being disconnected from the real economy right now, that it snapped back and, okay, well, the recovery is not going to happen for another two or three quarters, maybe even longer than that, right? I mean, yeah, Andy, it's important to recognize like what the market is, right? So the market, when we say the market, it's not a reflection of the strength of the economy. It's a reflection of the public sentiment of the stocks that were in that index that we're looking at. And one of the interesting dynamics that we've seen there, 20% of the S&P 500 is made up of a handful of stocks, a handful of tech stocks. So while we look at different sectors throughout this pandemic, some are performing much better than others. And healthcare and technology are two sectors that are performing very well given their businesses. And what, what we're seeing companies who have moved their workforces to work from home are putting in long-term plans around leveraging technologies they didn't use before. And they're likely to keep those. They're likely to keep using those. So those technology stocks are doing very, very well. And if the market is skewed, the index is skewed by a number of technology stocks, people will say, hey, the market is up. I think it's a fair point that that doesn't reflect the strength of the 2300 NYC listed companies when you look more broadly across their base. We are seeing strength in healthcare, technology, consumer goods, but we're seeing other industries that are hurt more by this pandemic having a, a more difficult time. And it certainly also doesn't reflect just the individuals that are impacted through this process. Clearly, we've seen restaurants and and so many you know gym owners and others that are that are struggling right now and that's why it's important that we recognize Wall Street will recover from this and that won't be a problem we need to make sure that we're coming together those of us that are left in a position of strength are helping those that were impacted the most and that's why the packages that the government has had have been focusing on the individual and how do we put money back in their pocket and that's also why we see the actions that the listed companies that I talked about that are taking, all our NYC companies, are helping those restaurants, frontline workers, delivery workers. They're providing free services. They're making financial contributions. And many times they're focusing on vaccines and drugs so that we can get the economy back to a place where their businesses can get back up and running. It really is bifurcated in so many ways, um, what we're seeing right now. And, and I, I like what you said about the fangs and understanding their import when it comes to the indexes, for instance. Yes. What about on the flip side? Are you seeing uh, companies at risk of being delisted? Is that on the rise, that type of thing? 
It is obviously given our listing standards are, are tied to metrics around valuations and stock prices. The SEC has been very constructive in working with us, understanding that this is a unusual scenario. And, and, and hopefully as we learn more about the virus and start to overcome it, these companies will be able to go back to more business as usual. So we filed with the SEC to relax some of the listing standards in the short term so that they can continue to remain listed. And, and, and they've been very constructive through that process. So investors have information that they need to have, but the timelines on how it might impact a company would, would be uh, elongated so that they have a little bit more time to, to, to recover from, from these issues. What would be an example of a relaxing or you know giving someone a pass? I mean, in the same sense that during the crisis, a landlord might say, okay, we'll, we'll let you go on rent this month, that kind of thing, right? What would be an example? We, uh, in uh, companies that fall below our listing standards have six months typically to- Some of those, to, how do they- uh, Listing standards are, are price checks. What, what price are they trading at? What's mm -hmm. their overall market cap value? Right. And so there are certain uh, metrics right. that are objective metrics that they need to meet in order to be listed on, a, on, on the New York Stock Exchange. And if they start to fall below that, they have a period of time to cure. What the SEC is allowing us to do is saying, well, let's extend that timeline a bit so that that, doesn't, that clock doesn't start until June. Right. And what about IPOs? I, I've seen there are a few out there. Is that completely dead or signs of life? It, I, there, there are signs of life. It, it's, it's obvious, just like the listed company market, the IPO market is impacting people differently, right? So some businesses based on the the services that they provide are actually doing very well during this period of time. Some of them are considering still moving ahead with an IPO. We have raised over $5 billion worth of capital just since the floors closed. So that's been through IPOs, through special purpose acquisition companies or corporations or SPACs, through follow-on offerings with companies that are under pressure, like Carnival, uh, Cruise Lines, or, or Darden, and restaurants, you're seeing those companies come to the public markets to raise more money. And then there are new companies out there that are thinking about it. So certainly the number is fewer than it would have been in January, <laughs> but we're seeing a few companies that are looking for the, the next couple of months, whether they're in industries that, that are um, growing pretty quickly now, or technology industries, healthcare, for sure, and and then there are other companies that are pushing out to the third quarter and looking to delay their timing a little bit. Let's shift gears a little bit, Stacy, and I want to ask you about you. How did you find yourself uh, in this position of president of the New York Stock Exchange? Well, I think you described it in a pretty good way there. I found myself in this position as president of the New York Stock Exchange. It wasn't something I dreamed I would do one day and and went out to pursue it. I found myself uh, in a number of different places along the way throughout my career, and that ended up in, in this one. So I, I was studying engineering, and I, through happenstance, ended up with an internship on the trading floor of the New York Stock Exchange, and I fell in love. I fell in love with the markets. I fell in love with the floor itself and the, the pace that, uh, of, of trading that was happening down there. I grew to understand it better. Later, you know, realizing I, I think I originally really liked how the energy level and how, what was happening. And later I understood how our, what our mission was, right? And that companies were coming to raise money so they could go out and change the world. And so they could go do really interesting things. And so that became an even deeper appreciation for the, for the capital markets. So I spent about 10 years as a trader. I left, I, I did uh, some things for fun and went to culinary school and had a, <laughs> had a little bit of a detour. 
And then I came back to the financial markets. I actually spent a few years working at NASDAQ. And then I came back to work for the exchange itself. Because when I worked the first 10 years, I was, I was a trader working for a, a specialist firm, which is now a designated market maker. Shortly after I joined the New York Stock Exchange, just 10 days later, it was announced that we were being acquired, which was an interesting time to be at a company. It's, it's really fascinating because you get to really reinvent a place. And so uh, we were acquired by a company called Intercontinental Exchange based out of Atlanta, Georgia. And ICE came in and said, what do we want to do here? What do we want to, where do we want to invest in places we, we are underinvested? What do we want to stop doing? And, and what do we want to uh, start doing that we're not doing? So we, we worked through that process of just going through the exercise. Before you knew it, I was chief operating officer and then stepped into the role as president. But it was sort of found, found myself there. So you're a chef. I mean, how does any of that training impact what you do today? Are there any commonalities? There are a lot of commonalities. When you work in a kitchen, you are, you know, and I didn't earn a living as a chef, but I spent some time in kitchens as I went through school. But when you, when you work in a kitchen, you, you, everything's happening very quickly. So you need to make decisions quickly. You need to communicate very clearly because if you're not clear and uh, you, you, things go wrong pretty quickly and it's hard to recover. And you need to, you know, you can't take things personally. You need to just power through and, and move on. And that's very much like it was working on the trading floor. Perhaps that's why I was drawn to that environment because I, I seem to, I like those environments. And so that was, that was pretty similar. When I look at my role now, I, I find that I take from all of the different pieces of my background. And I, I think that's true for anybody in, in any role. You know, your skills create your toolbox, and then you can go apply them to any sort of project. And so I, I would encourage people, and I do very often when I speak to young people coming out of school, figure out what skills you have and work on improving those. Work on providing yourself with a, with a set of things you can use and go tackle whatever you want. And don't get too hung up on what the boundaries are for a certain path. You know, I, I'm not really a big fan of the idea of a career path that you need to walk through head down. One more cooking question, though. So you're at home, and what have you been cooking during this time? I've been I've been cooking some. Uh, I've been cooking a few different things, and and it sort of depends on what I can get in the grocery store because sometimes you go in and and not everything is available. I will say, while I enjoy cooking, I also I miss going out to restaurants. And so I'm I'm there's a restaurant it's called Lartuzzi in New York City that I I I love, and I know that when this is over, I I look forward to getting back there and all the restaurants that just provide not just great food, but great service and comfort to, to the local community. And I, my heart goes out to them because I know they're struggling through this. And, you know, as someone who loves food and, and loves restaurants, I, I really, I do hope that, that we can get past this quickly enough that their businesses can come back and thrive. And I hope people are saving their, their restaurant money, setting aside some money to go out to restaurants when, when they can. Well, that's a great point. Um, so you've been the president now for two years, and I'm wondering what you feel like you've accomplished and what you feel like you need to accomplish going forward, Stacey. Well, one of the things that has been fascinating over the past two years, given the fact that I grew up in the trading side of the business, it's been really wonderful to get to know all of our listed companies and the different businesses that they're in and the work that they're doing because I was really focused on financial markets. So, get, so getting, getting to know that has been, and understand what, what are the drivers for them so that I can provide service to them and we can provide service. And frankly, working through this pandemic, we've been holding calls with them 
with experts like Dr. Scott Gottlieb or, or Mohamed El Ararian so that they can make informed decisions and bringing them together. So that's certainly been an area of focus of, of, of ours and being a good resource for them, helping them with initiatives like diversity. And we just announced yesterday new members of the Board Advisory Council, uh, led co-chaired by my uh, colleague, Betty Liu, along with, with, with two women on the ICE board to help companies create more diversity on their, on their corporate boards. So th those things, I think, you know, just helping companies be better public companies and and fighting for the resiliency of the markets are certainly a, a, an area that I've I've been focused on for the past couple of years. I also have heard a lot and and seen a lot, as you have, I'm sure, the discussion around capitalism. And one of the things that I think we have not done as well as we can could have as an industry is describe the virtues of capitalism and the value that it provides to the United States of America and how we have grown this nation by providing a, a framework so companies can raise money and grow their businesses, but also importantly, share in that success. And so as I came into 2020, one of my focuses was going to be, as we were going into an election year too, is to really explain the value of capitalism and why it's so important and why it's such an important part of of our nation and who we are and why we need to support it. But that doesn't mean it's perfect. And as companies are waiting longer to go public, investors are not getting the opportunity to share in that success. And we do have a bifurcation of wealth in this country. And so we do need to address some of those concerns if we want to see capitalism be able to accomplish what it has so far to date and to, con to continue to, to invest in it. What I've seen over the past six weeks is the best case I could possibly have made. When I look at how these companies have risen to this challenge of not just be focusing on shareholder return, but focusing on their communities, focusing on investing those on the front, you know, helping those on the front line. Our healthcare workers are out there every single day. So many of these public companies are raising money in the public markets and going out and donating money in other places so that they can they can help fight. And you know, it's a proud moment for me to highlight their work. You know, we use our opening and closing bell ceremonies very often to highlight milestones for public companies. Right now, every single day, we're highlighting a frontline worker on the opening and uh, during those ceremonies to highlight that we're, we're grateful for what they're doing. So our hashtag gratitude campaign is, is all about that. And, and I, I think that's an important part of our story that we have to tell a better because people need to understand why why we have this this economic structure that we have all right stacy cunningham lots of work to do there thank you so much for joining us stacy cunningham president of the new york stock exchange thanks andy stay well and and and, and be safe you've been watching influencers i'm andy serwer we'll see you next time